Good morning. I'm Emily Madison, and today we will be reading from Nahum chapter 1, verse 1 through 13, which can be found on page 782 in the Pew Bible. Nahum chapter 1, verse 1 through 13. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came... One who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from, from off you and will burst your bonds apart. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, everyone. I'm glad you all are with us. Let me do two a little bit. Um, I'm really glad you guys are with us. Hey, and second, uh, I want to invite you to grab your bulletin and flip it over to the back side. I have a little gift here for you. Uh, if you've been with us for a couple weeks, you know we're in a series on the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets are 12 prophets that range from like 8th century B.C. to 5th century B.C. They speak a lot of God's promises to care for his people. There's lots of uh, predictions about the Messiah that was to come, and there's a lot of judgment, a lot of rebuke, a lot of correction in there. And we are on week four of that series and maybe in the spirit of like a hockey game, like at the end of the third period, just thought I'd pull off for a second and give you some help, kind of come into the locker room. Let's talk about how we're doing and holding up. I think I experienced it this week, mostly reading Nahum. Uh, it's a lot of just like darkness and pain and judgment. And you're going like, hey man, I'm trying to hold my marriage together. I'm trying to figure out how to be single. I'm trying to get this thing going on at my work. I'm trying to figure out my bank account. The uh, last thing I need is just this re relentless bludgeoning of judgment from these people. I don't even know how to pronounce their cities. And so maybe you've experienced that because we've asked you to read the Minor Prophets. Just stay in one book every week in preparation for this time. And so I wanted just to pull off for a second and go, hey, how do you find Jesus in the middle of this? The whole Bible is really pointing to Jesus. All of our needs and failures point to what he would accomplish for us. There's promises and specific commands but what it means to follow him. There's things that he said he would do that point us to Jesus. But if you're not careful, you could just read Nahum, engage all the judgment, go, whew, 
close it and get about your day. And so what I wanted to do was just signal for you some ways to engage with Jesus as you look at these prophets. So on the back of your bulletin there, I gave you just like six, six ideas, six pro tips. Uh, first, I would love for you to just like slow down a little bit, um, follow the footnotes in the Bible that will take you to places where this is a quote or there's an allusion to something else or here's a type that's happening. So like in Nahum chapter 3, it kind of has this judgment against the, the false shepherds of Nineveh. And it says that they're asleep. So that would be a space where you go, all right, here's a passage about shepherds that are false. We think about Jesus as our great shepherd. And so he doesn't fall asleep on us. He's not asleep at the wheel of our lives. Following a footnote will get you to John 10 where that's explained and talked about. So there are foreshadows, some specific commands. Like in Micah last week, there are specific prophecies about the birth of Jesus. Those might be easier to find. But there are themes and things about the character of God. If you'll let the footnotes follow you to like a path to Jesus, I think that will actually be pretty helpful. I'd also like to encourage you before you start, we've referenced in the reading guide, the Bible Project has some quick like uh, summaries. They're maybe five to seven minutes long. They give you the layout of the book, kind of the structure of it, some of the main themes. Uh, I start Monday morning with that. I watch that first and then I read and go, oh, okay, that makes a whole lot more sense now that I know what's happening with these little signposts. So if you've been struggling to follow along, I would encourage you with that. So, so first, follow kind of the footnotes. Um, second, celebrate the faithfulness and the loving, gracious character of God that you see in there. Amidst all the judgment, there is this line of God's faithfulness to his people. He promises to deliver. He promises to be with them. He promises to be a shelter and a help. So like Nahum 1.7 would have taken us there. The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. Just a pause for a moment and let a passage like that take your heart to celebrate the character and nature and grace of God. So, so celebrate. Third, acknowledge the holiness of God and the severity of sin. We're not used to things that are uncomfortable. In fact, we build our entire lives around avoiding discomfort. It's why we struggle on the edge of addictions. It's why we numb out with TV. It's why we work so much. It's why we're always distracted. Anything to quiet the stuff inside our soul. So when you're confronted with rebuke and correction and words of judgment, it can be easy just to move on. But if you'll sit for a second, let those actually wake you up like smelling salts to go, oh my gosh, this is not a game. The things I'm toying with, the stuff that I'm indulging in, the things I'm tempted by, the Bible really does call them like life and death. To wake up to the severity of what actually is happening in the world around us and in our lives, to acknowledge God's holiness and how serious he takes sin. Don't, don't miss a chance there because that will lead you to your need for Jesus. It'll help you celebrate that he died in your place to bear the penalty for, for your sin. So that's the third one. And that should lead us forward to own your own personal sin. If it's like this is how God sees it, this is the severity of sin, don't just stay out there with those people, but come inside your own heart. Ask where are those temptations for you. Take some time to actually confess again. Make that personal so that the need you have for a Savior that the minor prophets are prophesying and predicting would actually then resonate with your heart. So that's four. Own the depths of your own sin. And then as you do that, turn to Jesus. Like the one that they are prophesying about and pointing to has already come. You get a chance in those moments facing the seriousness of your sin to take a deep breath and turn to Jesus. Turn to him as the one who has died 
for your sins. And if you're already reconciled to him as a Christian, you already trust in him, let that put a smile on your face that he died for the very things that you're now thinking about. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, hear the good news that Jesus came to bear the penalty of all the things that you have done, all the wrath that you deserve, the way these texts talk and the things that it lays out for you. Jesus came to do something about that. So, so an invitation to actually turn to the Savior that's being predicted in these text that would be huge and then to trust God the one who kept his promise in the Old Testament is with you now where you need him so you could think about following and celebrating and acknowledging owning turning to Jesus and then trusting in him and that would like be a gospel cycle it would be uh, who God is and then our, our need and brokenness what he came to do about that and then actually turning to trust in him and celebrate his grace and goodness. So to follow kind of a gospel line as you're reading these minor prophets, I just wanted to put that in front of you. Again, maybe it was just my unique experience this week, but I felt a little bit overwhelmed, like reading Nahum five, six, seven times this week, going like, okay, I got it. There's a lot of judgment there. I needed some hope. And so as I was wrestling that with myself, I thought, maybe you're like me. Maybe you're nothing like me. Maybe you're way more mature and you're already on top of that. But I thought we could be served by some of those things. I might encourage you to fold that, throw it in your Bible next to your reading guide. And if you're not following the reading guide, this sounds fun, doesn't it? You can just jump into all these judgment texts. Join the party with us during the week. Uh, this little reading guide, though, will take you into those. We're going a little bit out of order. I think it will be good for your soul to encounter those texts through the week and then bring those questions into Sunday morning and then let us kind of together pray into them, speak into them. I want to encourage you there because there is a ton of beauty amidst the darkness. The way contrasting things happen. The light and the dark of the minor prophets are really, really good for our soul. So I wanted just to give that to you. All right, so hey, as we jump into Nahum, let me just pray for us. Um, thus concludes our service announcements. Jesus, you are gracious and kind and good. You had to come because of what this book talks about, because of the just judgment and wrath that we deserve. We worship you that you did come that you stepped into our world hundreds of years after Nahum was written to make a way for your enemies to be reconciled to you. So we just want to start by saying thank you for who you are, thank you for what you've done, and then ask for your help for these words to get our hearts all the way to you. It would be too short of a thing to just stop in like shame or assess assessment or kind of feeling bad about where we've been. We need the hope that you provide and promise to us, even the complicated kind of hope that a text like this gives us. So would you help us? And then I want to pray specifically for those who don't yet know you. Would you draw them to you? This, this text is about the wrath that your enemies will face. And the Bible says that apart from Jesus, that's where all of us are. So for those in the room or those listening or those watching online who, who don't yet know you, I pray you would draw them to yourself. Would you be gracious and save them even this morning? God, would you convince them of their need and of your abundant, beautiful provision for all that they need? And then, God, for the comfort we need, for the help, for the hope, would you speak over us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Nahum. Hey, it's an interesting book. It's one of the only ones that is actually aimed almost exclusively not at God's people, but at another pagan nation. So you see there in verse 1, this is an oracle concerning Nineveh. And maybe we're not very familiar with the ancient world, but Nineveh wasn't an Israelite city or a city in Judah. It was a city in Assyria. 
It was the capital of Assyria. Maybe you hear Nineveh and you think about Jonah. It's a pretty popular story, this reluctant prophet who God says to go and preach a message of repentance. And so he doesn't want to go. So you have like a big storm and a big fish and you have this huge city and all these overwhelming odds. And then you have Jonah reluctantly telling them God's going to destroy them. And they actually respond and repent and relent. And there's, there's this beautiful mercy that God shows. It's complicated for Jonah because these are his enemies. He's, he's seen them do horrible things. It would be like if you are from Gaza and you're a missionary in Israel or, or vice versa. And you're talking about the grace and mercy of God to people that have kidnapped your family or who, who sent missiles over and bombed your school. And you're, you're excited maybe, but you also have some tentative to it. That's where Jonah's at. He goes to this pagan city to preach a gospel of repentance, and, and they actually do it. They actually repent. So now maybe you're confused because Nahum's all about judgment, and so what, what is kind of confusing is that Jonah takes place about a hundred years before this space. This is about a hundred years before this. We're going to talk about Jonah next week. We try to do order some things for different reasons, but I wanted you to know this book comes a hundred years after that revival in Nineveh, which signals for us that the grace of God is not something that we just take for granted. We don't just look into our past and go, oh, I was right with God back then. Things went great then. I must be fine now for forever. That they would go from that space of revival and God kind of pulling back his judgment, them trusting in God to 100 years later, they're back to their old ways. They're back into the sin. They're back into the oppression. They're back into the judgment. They're back into all the spaces where, where they're worshiping false gods. The 100-year gap there matches seasons of our life where we have felt close to God and then we actually fall away from God. There's just an essence of warning even in the first verse. Here's Nineveh that we know, we know about Nineveh. It's this amazing city that turned. Oh gosh, they stopped turning and it makes for us an awareness that the grace and mercy of God is not something to be taken for granted. Nahum talks about the judgment of God in ways that are really helpful for us, but they are really complex for us. Kind of in a sentence, Nahum is about the complex comfort of God that comes from his judgment. Nahum's about the complex comfort of God that comes from his judgment. And what's complex about it is both you need him to judge your enemies, you need him to come and deliver you, and you actually also deserve his judgment. People have sinned against you and you have sinned against them. We live in this very mixed world like in their day where, where the people of God had, had sinned against God. And so in some ways, the nation of Assyria coming was part of God's judgment to deal with God's people's sin. And God judges the Assyrian nation for their own sin. It's super complicated. But there's ways where there's comfort knowing that God speaks into what is complicated for us. It gives us just a deep breath to go, oh yeah, my life is really complicated. There's places where I'm, I'm pretty confused. There's places where I don't understand. Again, where I've harmed others and I've been harmed. And in that space, maybe we could kind of split the room in two. Because judgment that's prophesied for people who've actually trusted in God's provision for their judgment, should let them actually well up with a gratitude. So the room is split. Those of you who trusted in Christ already, those of you who are reconciled to God, you don't need to hear the judgment with this crushing soul weight of shame. You need to hear a message about judgment for repentance for sure, but also for some rejoicing. That's right. That's what God did for me. 
Is there anything left in my life that I need to clean out? Places where I need to turn to him. So you should repent and rejoice. But the other part of the room that isn't reconciled to God through his son Jesus, who actually is in that enemy's space, you need to hear this sharp warning. God loves you enough to warn you and give you clarity about what's at stake with your soul as you resist him. And so there's two kinds of people in the room, and both of them are pretty messed up. Even Christians, right, there's inconsistency and there's brokenness and things you wish you were doing that you're not doing, but you're rightly related to God because of Christ, not because of what you've done. And people who don't yet know God, maybe that's a mixture too. Maybe you're earnestly seeking. Maybe you have a desire. Maybe you sense, like, hey, I need something outside of myself. Your life has come to a place where you're ready to actually explore something spiritual to help address the things inside your soul. So it's not all bad, but still you find yourself outside the grace and mercy of God because you haven't yet trusted the one sacrifice for your sin. Friends, I just want to be really clear this morning. The book of Nahum is a loving rebuke and warning that sends us down two roads. One of rejoicing for having accepted the sacrifice of God for the sin that we deserve. We should feel thankful. And those who have not yet trusted God should be terrified. As you read Nahum and you read the descriptions and you go, man, several thousand years have passed, but, but that's me. I, I've done that. I've used people. I've, I've to look out for just for myself. I've turned away from God. I've, I've taken advantage of things. I've, I've actually not sought justice in every moment. And what the Bible says is not just those are moral character mistakes, but they actually deserve the very wrath of God. So, so this is complicated, but it's intended to be a comfort to us. And so I want to use three S words to kind of help us walk through Nahum. What Nahum's going to do to kind of engage this complex comfort is one, show us what God is like. Show us the complex nature of even who God is to step into this complex world that we're in. He's also going to remind us that God is our shelter. So he shows what God is like, that God is our shelter, and then he promises to shatter our enemies. So he shows us what God is like, he reminds us that God is our shelter, and then he promises to shatter our enemies. Number one, showing what God is like, look in verse 2 of Nahum. He says this, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. He keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Okay, as you hear that, you should kind of feel complicated. You go, whoa, here's this jealousy, here's this avenging, here's this wrath. And then he says he's slow to anger and he's great in power. And then he says he will not clear the guilty. So what do I do with that? What Nahum invites us to do is show us that in this complex world where we both deserve judgment and we desperately need him to judge our enemies, God is able to stand in the space between mercy and wrath, between forgiveness and justice, and not be confused. It's a complex place, but it's not confusing for God, he can perfectly hold together the wrath that we deserve and be slow to anger without dismissing one or the other, which is our trap. Either you think God is this abusive, horrible warmonger that only wants to harm people, or you think he's this enabling parent that he kind of warns you, but it's kind of fine. It's the parent in the grocery store that says, okay, come on the count of three. On the count of three, one, two, 
two and a half, two and three quarters, two and seven eighths, two and 15 sixteenths, two and 31 30 seconds. And you just keep going on and on and on to some algebraic equation where you miss the fact that God doesn't just wink at your sin. We either take advantage of his grace or you're terrified of him. And what Nahum shows us is God holds perfectly together in who he is, both righteous wrath and relenting of his anger. And before we get too far, it's in Jesus that we see these things perfectly held together. The cross of Christ shows us, Romans 3 says, that God is both just, because he doesn't just wink at sin and say no problem. Hey, if your family got kidnapped and murdered, you would not be okay with God just going, hey, let's just forgive everybody. The reason why you can forgive is you're trusting that one day that has been paid for. One day there will be ultimate justice. You don't have to seek it. You can forgive because you're trusting that God is a just God. So on one side you have that, and the other side you have this winking, enabling, not that big of a deal. God's just happy that we're here, that we even pay him attention and give him a time of day. And Jesus' death on the cross says, oh, no, 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 no. God loves us so much he came into our world and he holds perfectly together in his own body the ability to forgive because he bore the weight of what we needed to be forgiven of. Hey, that's the good news of the gospel for those of you in the room who are not followers of Jesus. The Bible is not a story of how you can make yourself right with God and do enough for God to please you or not be mad at you. It says that he is mad at you. that You deserve his wrath. That you're actually his enemy because of your sin and brokenness. And Jesus came into the world, took all of that upon himself on the cross. The cup of wrath that you deserved, he drank on the cross all the way to the bottom. So God himself stands as a wrathful God and one who is slow to anger because he absorbs your wrath in himself. And yet it's not just something plastic or something out there that we just kind of give a nod to. You must respond to this. Jesus comes into the world and calls us to repent, calls us to turn. God holds complexly in who he is both justice and judgment and wrath and him being slow to anger. And there's a fascinating thing going on inside chapter 1. It's actually a war poem. It's an alphabet poem. It's incomplete. It misses some letters to kind of communicate to us kind of the brokenness and staccato nature of what's going on. And he's actually quoting Exodus 34 in these two verses. It's a really familiar passage. You see it lots of different places in the scriptures, but it's a a passage that talks about God's kindness and grace and mercy. Listen to just some of the ways this talks, and I want you to notice one major difference. This is Exodus 34. It says, the Lord is Passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sins, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Sound familiar? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on their children and their children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, on purpose, Nahum quotes that passage and he leaves out forgiving their iniquity and transgression and sin. And he changes it from slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love to slow to anger and great in power. To say there is a limit to the patience of God. He is slow to anger, but he is right to be angry. And he will show his power to judge 
the things that actually stir him towards anger, the injustice of the world. Okay, God is complex. He stands into a complex world. And I would actually say you need a complex God like this because the world you live in is very complex. Simplistic answers often do not hold in your suffering. They don't hold when you're broken. They don't hold when you've been assaulted. They don't hold in the spaces of you actually living out the real life because it is a complex world. So here comes God in his character holding these things together. And in his essence, his being in who he is. That's what God is like. But who who is he? Look in the end of verse 3. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. His hills melt. The earth heaves before him. And the world and all who dwell in it. This one who holds the complex emotions of of wrath and anger and justice and mercy together is the one who stands cosmically over the entire universe. This is a war poem. What he's describing is God, the just judge. And when he walks and kicks dust off his feet, it's the storm clouds. The storm clouds are the dust of his feet. This is him standing over against everything. The might and power of God cosmically gives him the power and ability to forgive us completely. The might and power of God cosmically gives him the ability to forgive us completely. This one who has this kind of cosmic power chose to aim it at your redemption. He chose to pour his wrath on his son who was the infinite one. The God who had no beginning and no end. That's the one who died in your place to bear the penalty for your sin so he could do it completely. God steps into our complex world with himself and he shows us he's able to stand in those spaces. Nahum wants you to be comforted in the complex world by showing you what God is like, what he holds together and who he actually is. And that's the place where you find comfort. It's not predictive prophecies to help you read the newspaper that ultimately comfort you. It's a God like this, who you can acknowledge that you've sinned against and then he stepped into your world to bear the penalty for your sin so that you could be forgiven, set free, move from enemy to adopted daughter and son. And I think it's a loving thing that Nahum is so clear about that for us. The way he engages this with us gives us a chance to actually find that comfort in God because he doesn't pull any punches. He doesn't let you kind of get halfway. He tells you what your illness is, is terminal. So that you'll seek the treatment that only Jesus can provide. Okay, so that's showing us who God is. And now he asks two questions in verse 6. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. He asks two questions. Who, who can stand before him and who can endure this heat? And now he sends us down two roads. There's two kinds of people. There's those who look to God as their shelter and those whom God will crush. There's those that he looks to as shelter in verse 7. The Lord is good. He is a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. 
Who can stand his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? It's those who look to Jesus, those who look to God himself to be their very refuge. The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. This idea of taking refuge points us all the way to Jesus who would come into our world to bear the penalty for our sins so that we could be united to him. Who can stand? None of us deserve to stand. All of us are guilty because of our sin. Those who stand are the ones who take refuge in him. And there's all kinds of promises throughout the book of Nahum that God would send one to come and help. So just go to verse 15 of chapter 1. It says this, Behold the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows, and never again shall the worthless pass through you, because he's utterly cut off. This first part of chapter 1, verse 15, this idea of someone standing on a mountain bringing good news of peace. Isaiah actually said that 100 years before in Isaiah 52. A little plug for some of your footnotes. If you were to follow that footnote, you'd see this is a quote from Isaiah 52. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. And 52 goes into 53 that says the good news that we needed, God embodied himself as he took on our brokenness. He was the lamb that was sent to slaughter as the one who would actually die in our place. And the New Testament picks this up in Romans chapter 10. And that space as he's talking about anybody who will call upon the name of the Lord can be saved. That's Romans 10, 13. And then he says, and how will they call on him when they not believed? And how are they to believe in him when they never heard of? And how are they to hear without somebody preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, quoting Isaiah, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah also says, the Lord has believed and has, uh, Lord who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This passage points us to one who would come to bring our peace. God promises to be the shelter for those who would trust in him. That is the good news of the gospel. But, but he asks who can stand. There are those who look to God as a refuge. What about those who don't? Look in verse 8. But instead, with an overflowing flood, he will make complete end of his adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. This is that third S that he shatters our enemies. God promises a complex hope into the darkness of our world by promising to actually justly judge our enemies. And again, this is complicated because there are places where we are the enemy and what we have done and we need God's grace and there are people who have done things to us that match that ethic or response or pattern of an enemy. For Christians, it's repent and rejoice. For non-Christians, it's receive the grace of God so that he might actually become your refuge. The rest of Nahum unpacks in chapter 2 and 3 what this destruction actually looks like, what the shattering of the enemy looks like. We'll just go in chapter 2 for a moment. Chapter 2, verse 8. We'll stay here for a second. Just listen to this graphic language of what God promises to do to those who are his enemies. Nineveh is like a pool whose waters run away. Halt, halt, they cry, but none turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold, the gold they had stolen from other places. There is no end of the treasure of all the wrath of all precious things. Desolate, desolation and ruin. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish is in all their loins. All faces grow pale. 
Where is the lion's den, you proud lion who used to harm other people, the feeding place of your young lions? Where is the lion and lioness? Where have they gone? Where are the cubs? No one is there. The lion tore enough for his cubs and strangled prey for his lioness. He filled his caves with prey and his dens with torn flesh. God says in verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke and with sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall not, no longer be heard. Woe to the bloody city of Nineveh, full of lies and plunder, no end to their prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, flashing sword, glittering spear, host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies and all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, grateful and for the deadly charms, who betrays nations with her whorings and people with her charms, which you could translate as sorcery or witchcraft. Okay, Tuesday, I'm like, dang, we need some hope. This is heavy stuff for your devotional reading. But here in this, a loving warning, a graphic warning of what happens to those who don't follow after God. Who can be spared? It's those who take refuge. What happens to those who don't take refuge in God? This is what happens. And in the middle of that, it's a gracious, loving, kind invitation to actually turn. And we think about the warnings in Scripture and then the warning not to resist the warning. When you hear his voice to stop and turn. I mean, if the Nahum text is having its effect on your heart at this point, you feel like this weight. You feel the weight of God's judgment. You feel the weight of our sin. You feel the weight of our brokenness. And you, you're made to actually look for some sort of help. You can look to yourself. You can look to money. You can look to your job. You can look to other people. But you know those are empty and bankrupt. What the Bible wants you to do is move towards the one who stands above the clouds, who complexly holds both justice and mercy together, who has the power cosmically to rule the universe, who condescended himself, came into our world, died on a cross so you could be set free, and wants you to find refuge in him. And not to harden your heart. Nineveh had heard a word of repentance a hundred years before, and they repented, and then they progressively Harden their heart. Have you heard a word of repentance before? Have you heard about God's love for you, about His mercy, about how much He cares about you? Did you receive that in a moment and say yes to that? And then progressively, weeks, months, decades, you hardened your heart towards those things? Is the freshness of what He did and accomplished for you still nourishing your soul? Or have you found yourself, like Nineveh, discarding it? found yourself maybe acknowledging it in the past, but, but no longer needing it because of all the power that you have, all the things you've accomplished, you no longer sense your need for something outside of yourself. Here in this text, the destruction that God promises. It's a destruction that he would send on Assyria in the 7th century. He would send other nations to come and destroy them. He promises to actually do that. He promises to deal with our enemy. And when you hear that, Hear what the Bible says is our real enemy. It's not people. It's not nations. Ephesians 6 says it's powers and principalities. It's the evil one. It's sin itself. Those are the things that are our real enemy. And Jesus came into our world not riding on a horse and chariot coming to 
die actually in our place to free us from the great enemy. He promises to be a shelter for those who trust in him, and he promises to shatter our enemies. And if you are in that camp, it's a loving warning. And there's just graphic language in this to kind of get our attention of like where we really are and our feeble and try to Syria was the global superpower. So this would come to them in ways they'd be tempted to scoff, maybe like you're tempted to scoff now. Here it is, Baptist Church, doing that thing. It's been a little while. He hasn't yelled at us in a while, so it's due for this now. Maybe you're tempted to just discard these words. So Nahum keeps going in ways that I think actually are meant to get your attention. If you read this week, I would guess you scratched your head in chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. Listen, listen to what he says here. I'm, I'm giggling because it's like so crazy. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will lift up your skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. I will throw filth at you. I'm going to throw poop at you and treat you with contempt and make of you a spectacle. And all who look at you will shrink from you and say, Wasted is Nineveh. Who will grieve for her? Where shall I seek comforters for you? Did you read that and go like, seriously, God? Like, you're not better than that? You're not better than like throwing poop at your enemies? Like, this feels like something happens on a playground. Is this a bully bullying a bully? Or is this God graphically saying, I will put an utter end to where you find power and hope? This global superpower of the ancient world that had no rival, or dozens of years before they come to their demise, God says, I will put you to shame. Shame is super complicated. It's a close companion for me. Our world does everything we can not to add shame or cause shame or speak shame. That, that might have really, and maybe it's a reason why you don't trust the God of the Bible. There's things like this. You're like, man, he just sounds mean and angry and a bully. And if he is real, maybe I do want to resist him. Maybe I do want to reject him. I think what happens in these spaces where we realize the minor prophets are pointing us to something that was to come, and Nineveh is a type of enemy that God would actually fully defeat on the cross. The Messiah wasn't going to be a political king. It was going to be a spiritual king. Our deepest enemy is something that we can't see and touch. It has this supernatural part to it of sin and brokenness in the world. If you'll go there, then you can embrace a passage like Colossians chapter 2 that says that Jesus, on the cross, puts to open shame our sin and suffering. Colossians chapter 2, I'll start in verse 13. If you're taking notes, you can just write this down. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. This is the good news. God, God helped you. He saved you. You were dead, and God made a way for you to be forgiven from all of your trespasses, it says in verse 13. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Rightly saying, hey, this is what you deserve. This is the legal demand. Here's the charges against you and you are guilty. He canceled that record, all those legal demands. How? By setting them on the cross. Nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authority and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. What Nineveh was in a small way, sin and brokenness is in a cosmic way. And God says, I'm going to shame you. And these little 
images of flipping your skirt over your head and exposing your nakedness and throwing feces at you. He says in that space, actually, I'm going to shame sin. I'm going to shame death. I'm going to shame brokenness. I'm going to shame judgment by taking it upon myself on the cross, showing I am stronger. I have what my people need. I can be a shelter that will rescue. And all you need to do is run to me. The Bible is so clear that what we do to come into the shelter is know that we need a shelter and run. You don't build the shelter. You don't get a ticket to the shelter. You don't earn a right in there. You know you need shelter and you run to the shelter. It's the good news of the gospel. Friends, I want to invite you to look to Jesus as your shelter. And if you already have trusted Christ, this message of judgment is not a message for you. It was true of you, and you should read about what was true of you with a ton of gratitude. And you should stop and say, has my heart grown cold to that? Is there some repenting I can do? Have I, have I let things sneak back in that I used to actually resist? Am I finding shelter in something else? So for the Christian, you rejoice and you repent. But for those who are not yet trusting in Jesus, hear this definition of what God is doing, what he accomplished for you on the cross, the way he dealt with the shame that you actually deserve, putting the cosmic forces to shame by dying in your place. And what he asks you to do is respond, to repent, to come, to trust in him. And Jesus is the one who does all the work. Nahum points to your need for him. So I would ask, have, have you trusted him? Have you put your hope in Jesus? Is he your treasure? Is he your shelter? That's the question Nahum wants to ask. And he asks it in ways that are complex, but they give you comfort if you'll turn to the God who bears the weight of all of our judgment and sin. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me for just a moment? Text asks, who can stand before God's judgment? It's a rhetorical question. No one can unless they run to him. I just want to ask you again, have you turned to Jesus? Have you come to him as your shelter? Would you, would you look to him as the one who bore the weight for all your sin and brokenness so you could avoid the just judgment that you deserve? Just sit with that question for a moment. Christians answer that yes. Feeble, inconsistent, broken, but that's not the point. The point is that you're looking to him as the shelter. It's not how hard or how completely or how beautifully you run the shelter. It's that you're in the shelter. So Christians, I want to invite you to come and take communion here in a moment. It's a demonstration physically of how God kept his promise, how he shamed our enemies, how he made a way for your judgment to be forgiven and for you to be set free. And if you're not a follower of Jesus, God loves you. This word that's hard to hold on to is actually a word of love because it's given to you in time when you could still respond to it. Scripture says, do not harden your heart when you hear this word. You may not have time later. The time for Nineveh's repentance was over. Before that's true of you, would you turn to Jesus even today? I'll be on the front row if you want to talk about what it means to trust Christ. I'd love to listen today. We can meet this week. Anybody with a lanyard on would love to talk with you. There'll actually be folks in the back of the room, in the hallway, by some couches that would love to pray for you or with you. If you have questions about what it means to trust Christ or you want to pray about anything, they'd love to meet you back there. Have you trusted him as your shelter? If so, come and celebrate. If not, would you trust him now? 
There's prayers in the back of your worship guide that would give you some examples of what it would sound like to pray. Ask for him to meet you there. I want to give you space to do that now in this spot. Jesus, we come to you and we say, help. You're good and glorious. You died, took the penalty for our sin. You made in your broken body a shelter for us. We say thank you. And thanks that it saves us from being smashed by your justice. Thanks for showing us what you're like. Minister now to us in the room. Give us hope and joy. And where we need to sit in the judgment that we justly deserve, would you give us stamina to do that in ways that we might actually be able to respond? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we take communion as we tear a piece of the bread off and dip in the cup. This middle station here is gluten-free and all these aisles. If you're trusting Christ, come, and then we'll sing.